Welcome to Pomegranate, podcast of the Royal Australasian College of Physicians. I'm Mick Cavazzini, and before we get into today's show, I'd like to mention the creation of our virtual editorial group. We're looking for listeners who have a keen ear for podcasts and who'd like to help us develop topics of interest. The editorial group would also provide feedback on the show's content before it's published each month. It's not a huge commitment of time and would be a fun way of earning a few CPD points. Please check out the Pomegranate website for more information or email pomcast at racp.edu.au to express your interest. Today's episode is about low-value care in general paediatrics. Almost three-quarters of physicians surveyed in the US admit to ordering at least one unnecessary test, procedure or treatment every week. Evolve is the RACP's initiative to reducing clinical practices that don't do any good, according to the current evidence base. We talked about this and the Choosing Wisely campaign back in episode 10. Evolve has just published a list of the top five practices in general paediatrics that need to be pulled back. The list was boiled down from consultations with fellows of the Paediatrics and Child Health Division, three of whom I cornered at a recent masterclass. I'm start by asking each of you to read off one of the items off this list and then introduce yourself. Okay. So do not routinely prescribe oral antibiotics to children with fever without an identified specific bacterial infection. I'm Harriet Hiscock. I'm a paediatrician from the Royal Children's Hospital in Melbourne, where I'm director of the Health Services Research Unit, and I also run the Australian Paediatric Research Network. Sarah? Do not routinely undertake chest radiography for the diagnosis of bronchiolitis in children or routinely prescribe salbutamol or systemic corticosteroids to treat bronchiolitis in children. Hello, my name's Sarah Dalton. I'm a paediatric emergency doctor at the Children's Hospital at Westmead. I also work at the Agency for Clinical Innovation in New South Wales and I'm the president for paediatrics at the Royal Australasian College of Physicians. Do not routinely order chest radiography for the diagnosis of asthma in children. Kia ora, my name is Hamish McKay. I'm a paediatrician and clinical director of paediatrics at Waikato Hospital in Hamilton in New Zealand. Maybe I'll jump in with the next one. Do not routinely treat gastroesophageal reflux disease in infants with acid suppression therapy. And finally, do not routinely order abdominal radiography for the diagnosis of nonspecific abdominal pain in children. Now, is there any sense as to whether these low-value practices are more coming from junior staff who are trying too hard to show they're doing something or perhaps senior staff who are stuck on inferences from an outdated evidence base? I think there's a degree of both in that and certainly the the trainee certainly feels the pressure of the boss and no one wants to be the person on the ward round the next morning who gets asked so what was the CRP and you go oh I didn't get one. Um, certainly my juniors well know that in within our team there are some people who have a particular tendency to want particular tests and others who don't and to be honest they do an amazing job of varying their practice day to day week to week depending on which boss is on and I think particularly as um, as senior clinicians we need to be very careful about what we model to our juniors. Yeah, I agree, Hamish. There was a study in the US in adult medicine and they just targeted the junior doctors to reduce unnecessary cardiac testing in veterans and it was a spectacular failure because the junior doctors were just acting on the um, orders of their senior consultants. So I think if any hospital or system is trying to change 
low-value care, they need to do some careful groundwork first to understand what are the drivers, where's it coming from and target it. And that might be different at different sites. I remember starting in paediatrics and feeling really scared that you had to be a really special good doctor to do paediatrics. What I learned was a long list of differential tests. And one way that I could show how expert I was, was whenever I was consulted about a patient to say, well, have you done the hypoglycemia protocol? Or have you done the chest X-ray in the new patient with asthma? Because did you know there's a small chance that they might have leukemia and you shouldn't give steroids unless we've actually excluded that? So I think we train people to prove their worth by the number of tests they do. And I think we need to change that so they prove their worth by the number of tests they don't do. One final thing that I learned a long time ago from a very eminent man called William Runciman was to bring back hope in medicine, which is history, observation and physical examination Mm -hmm. and not to rely so much on tests. So, well, I think you've already addressed my next question, which was how to change that culture, what kind of conversations need to take place in the hospital about low-value care to make more permissive the the diagnostic procedures that you're recommending? I think it's also more than conversations. So um, you need multiple approaches and it'll be a combination of, yes, education, but audit and feedback is really important. So you become clinician one, two, three, four or five and you see what your chest X-ray ordering was for the month for asthma. And if you're an outlier, that is one of the strongest things to see it visually in front of your peers. They may not know who you are, but you pretty much want to get back into the pack. Um, So that helps. And the other approach, if there's an electronic medical record in the mix, then um, putting in clinical decision support at the the time of care to say, oh, you don't need to do a chest X-ray or a blood test here. I think also there's a bit of an issue for those in provincial centres that they feel a bit of the steely gaze of the tertiary centre and they don't want to uh, get stuff wrong. And certainly a couple of places I I worked in my training, there were comments about, we just want to make sure we don't miss anything. It was really brought out for me by a study of paediatric hospitals in America. They've got an association called PHIS, P-H-I-S, of 42 hospitals. And they've shown very clearly that if you're in a hospital that doesn't do much testing, that's across the board. If you're in a culture in a hospital that does do a lot of testing, then you get everything, FBEs, UNEs, liver tests, CRP, chest X-rays, CT heads, everything goes up. So it's a really cultural problem that people have to tackle at their individual hospital sites. It's, it's no one practice, it's really the... the it goes in- across the board in these institutions. Mm. Well, let's... Um, mm. Let's focus on the top five. The first is, of course, do not routinely prescribe oral antibiotics to children with fever without an identified bacterial infection. Because the literature shows that the vast majority of children presenting with fever don't have a bacterial infection and therefore won't benefit from antibiotics. Is the persistence of this practice largely driven by patients? Is that, is that your experience? As a paediatric emergency physician, I would have this conversation many, many times every day, as most paediatricians would. And the number of times I've sat down and literally said, there are these things called viruses and there are these things called bacteria and this is how we know what the difference is, that's probably a 10 or 15 minute conversation, depending on how worried the parents are. So sometimes I think another driver is it's just quicker to give people what they want than it is to spend the time explaining what's going on. So I wonder, you know, how do we go about trying to solve this? And I was in clinic yesterday 
with a very irritable, unsettled baby, um, mum and dad in tears, and I talked to them about temperament and their eyes glazed over. And then I went to a website and I showed them a video of an intense baby and they went, oh, now I understand. I'm wondering if we should be more clever in how we impart information other than just talking at parents and whether there's apps, visual things, videos that we can use that can be played in the emergency department waiting room, for example. We really must talk about antimicrobial stewardship as well. One of the reasons we don't use antibiotics all the time is because if we use them all the time, they won't work anymore. And that's actually something I talk to parents about. Um, Looking at the evidence that went into this was a a large cohort study of almost 1,000 febrile patients up to the age of two, in which 13% had a serious bacterial infection such as pneumonia or UTI. But comparing those that had bacterial infection and those that didn't, there was actually no difference in the mean temperature or their white blood cell count. So does this really go back to your point that there is no rational way of determining who might benefit from the antibiotics, so why give them? I think that we need to be very clear that this is about the prescription of oral antibiotics for children with a high temperature and who don't look that sick. Now, we're not talking about the kid with... um, you know, a prolonged capillary refill time, a tachycardia, who you're about to give the fluid bolus to, that kid needs IV antibiotics. And, you know, that's absolutely appropriate. But we're talking about the child who's a bit hot and a bit unhappy and you can't really figure out what's going on. And it's a maybe just in case. And I think that the cohort study that you're quoting probably blurs the lines a little bit because it will involve a number of patients with that. Um, And having trained through a meningococcal epidemic in New Zealand, we would have never advised anyone to give those kids oral antibiotics. If you were really concerned, it was give intramuscular antibiotics and send them in. Three of the recommendations on this Evolve list mention the use of x-ray imaging. Uh, So remind us, Harriet, again, why x-rays are so bad for kids and what a reasonable dosage might be. So the reason why we don't want to do x-rays is that they cause radiation and cumulative radiation does pose risks to the child for later cancers, for example. So that's not a trivial issue. Certainly abdominal x-rays actually have more radiation than chest x-rays. And these... Practices we've specifically chosen because it's been shown that these x-rays aren't needed for a diagnosis and or don't change management. But I'm I'm not sure sure that parents have got that message about radiation. And a couple of days ago in Melbourne, we had an asthma thunderstorm with 500 children hit the Royal Children's Hospital Emergency Department in 24 hours, the largest um, presentation in history. And I was speaking to a colleague actually at a private hospital in Melbourne, and she said the demand for chest x-rays went skyrocketing for both adults and children. I said, well, they shouldn't be doing chest x-rays. And she said, tell that to the parents who turn up to our private facility and get charged a $500 facility fee to come and then don't get an x-ray. So a lot of care for children goes on in in Australia in private hospitals and we need to bring them into the conversation and we need to put this information in parents' hands about unnecessary radiation of their child. In fact, this unprecedented asthma storm in Melbourne is a good segue to jump to the third item on the list, 
Because, as you say, for diagnosis of wheezing disorders in children, chest x-rays generally don't provide clinically relevant information. Can you guys recap some of the, the literature that went into this point? Well, I suppose there was um, a Swedish study in preschool children who were newly diagnosed with asthma, which showed that follow-up x-rays were normal in 50 out of 59 cases, and those who were had abnormal x-rays um, it didn't actually change treatment. And certainly one of the things that we try and drum into our trainees, and, and I think sometimes have to drum into ourselves as well, is that the purpose of any investigation is not to make a diagnosis, it's actually to change management. And otherwise it simply becomes a, a, a scientific nicety. It's very easy to take an x-ray and asthma and go, oh yeah, there's a bit of hyperinflation, a bit of, uh, oh, the lung markings are up, and oh yeah, and you can always see something behind the heart. Um, but honestly, is that going to change what you do for that child? I also think there's a driver around doing x-rays, which is partly that it's a delay tactic. I don't really know what else to do, so I'll order an x-ray and that will buy me a little bit of time. And it's actually easier to do than a blood test. And the doctor doesn't have to hurt the child. So you can send the child to a nearby room, not see what happens, and then what happens next for you is you look at this x-ray. So it's a very easy thing to do that makes us feel good but doesn't always change practice. Totally, that was so me as a junior doctor, but of course I don't do that anymore. <laughs> no one does, don't worry. <laughs> Sorry, well, you talk about changing practice in another US study of children admitted through ED with acute asthma exacerbations. Only 18 out of 180 had radiographic results that changed their treatment. Um, I think there's also a risk that you do find something a bit odd, and I think the classic thing in asthma and bronchiolitis is you find a degree of collapse which will resolve with time, but, oh, is it collapse? Is it consolidation? I'm not sure. Maybe I should start some antibiotics. So there is a risk of causing harm for our patients. And, and according to another study, pneumonia is also unlikely to be diagnosed by chest X-ray in children presenting to ED with wheezing. But pneumonia and asthma are treated very differently, so can effective treatment decisions be made based on other kind of clinical assessments apart from an x-ray? Absolutely. And, and one of the difficulties that some of my junior doctors have is that they, when they get an investigation done and the result isn't what they were expecting, they start to doubt their own clinical judgment. I've had junior doctors who have had a child who's febrile, they're tachycardic, they have creps easily audible at the left base and they get a chest x-ray to confirm for themselves a left lower lobe pneumonia and the x-ray doesn't look that remarkable, which we know happens. And then they start going, oh, well maybe I was wrong. And you have to go back and say to them, no, the x-ray is just not showing it. And you know, it, a pneumonia is not a radiological diagnosis, it's a clinical diagnosis. So again, what are the potential consequences of doing an investigation that is not only not helpful but distracting. I think it's worth stating that like with many of these things there are times when you do need to do a chest x-ray and asthma. The most important thing though is knowing where those times are and specifically we say do not routinely order chest x-ray for children with asthma but children with severe asthma absolutely should have an x-ray because we're looking for serious complications like pneumothorax. Um, we'll come back to Hamish's pet subjects. Don't undertake routine chest radiography for the diagnosis of bronchiolitis. 
because the evidence shows that chest x-rays don't discriminate well between bronchiolitis and other forms of lower respiratory tract infection. Now, a recent Cochrane review found that use of chest x-rays did not reduce duration of illness or severity of symptoms in patients, but is it hard to shake the intuition among physicians that more information is better? As you say, we see the hyperinflation, we have our diagnosis confirmed to us and we can pat ourselves on the back and say what good clinicians we are and how good our clinical judgment is. Um, and I think there's a degree of that with all these investigations. So there was a really nice article from the Journal of Paediatrics which found that when they had infants under two presenting with barn door typical symptoms of bronchiolitis, in fact you needed to scan 133 patients to identify one um, which might suggest an alternative diagnosis. It's one of those things of it's a, a realistically an exercise in futility. Now let's move on to the children that are diagnosed with bronchiolitis. The Evolve list tells us not to routinely prescribe salbutamol or systemic corticosteroids for the treatment. And a 2014 Cochrane review of 30 different trials found that salbutamol did not improve oxygen saturation, did not improve duration of hospitalisation, and in outpatients there was no effect on resolution of illness and hospital readmission rates. Would these findings come as a surprise to many listeners? Oh, look, you know, the theory is good there that steroids maybe should make a difference or maybe salbutamol would because it'll bronchodilate. But the reality is that even if you're using good scientific premise but have no evidence or, or evidence to the contrary, realistically you're practicing, practicing alternative medicine. And I think we just need to be very real with ourselves about, you know, this stuff doesn't work. Well, more than not working, it has the potential for adverse side effects. What, what are the, some of the side effects of bronchodilators? One of the commonest things I see is tachycardia and vomiting. And the reason that that's concerning is that I'll often hear about a child who came in with wheeze and a bit breathless, who has had a little bit of salbutamol to see if it works, but they're looking much worse now. And they've got a temperature now and their heart rate's really high and they're vomiting and the mother's really concerned. And then we think, well, this child potentially could have sepsis. So we better give them some IV antibiotics and bring them into hospital for a couple of days until we're sure that the blood cultures are clear but we would never have been there if we hadn't caused the tachycardia to start with. And there are similar underwhelming data for the benefit of corticosteroids. Again, a Cochrane review of over 2,500 participants showed there was no clinically relevant effect on outpatient admissions, on length of hospitalisation, clinical scores or oxygen saturation. And in fact, there was a study in 2013 that found even in individual patients, there was no difference in symptom severity comparing episodes of bronchiolitis that were treated with corticosteroids versus those that were not. And how widespread is the use of corticosteroids at the moment? I know that some clinicians in my uh, hospital use them, and if they're listening, you know who you are. <laughs> I think, but, I, mean, I think that's a good question. We don't have Australia-wide data on these low-value care practices, and one of the challenges for Evolve, I think, is to start to document where is the, this happening, what is the variation in that practice. You, you talk about how to quantify whether these guidelines, these recommendation lists actually make a difference to practice. What, what would your dream situation be in that respect? 
Uh, my dream situation is that we would all be capturing practice data on every child we see, that we would have diagnosis recorded and that we'd have the tests recorded and the outcomes of the test. Um, and that just doesn't exist despite our emerging electronic health capacities across our two countries. Uh, there's a saying in these sort of administrative data is garbage in, garbage out. So it's all about the quality of the data collected. And routinely we've collected good data for inpatients because that's what generates money. Very, very poor data in outpatient care where most kids go and reasonable data in ED presentations. And other sort of broader MBS records or whatever are just too MBS has no diagnosis attached to it, so you don't know what the child had the test for. Now, item the fourth on the Evolve General Paediatrics list is not to treat gastroesophageal reflux disease in infants with acid suppression therapy. Since randomised control trials have shown no effect of PPI drug as a primazole on gourd symptoms in neonates is the, is the main finding that goes towards this recommendation. But is the persistence of the practice more to do with the compelling logic than it is actually observing positive results? So I think the, the issue here is uh, there's a couple of issues. One is a if they have disease where they're actually vomiting up blood or inhaling vomit into their lungs or they're not putting on weight properly, um, that's a little bit more serious. And intuitively, you'd think that these medications would help, but they actually haven't been shown to reduce any of those um, complications or symptoms. A degree of reflux is normal in many infants, healthy, thriving infants, but a lot of children uh, and infants, particularly under one year of age, get misdiagnosed as having gastroesophageal reflux disease. So as soon as you put disease on something, then dictates parent expectations of treatment. We've done some work with um, maternal child health nurses in Victoria and we've shown great variations. Some of them are very aware about the evidence about reflux and PPIs and not to use them. Others are completely oblivious and still believe in reflux and silent reflux. And what about the side effects? How widely understood are they? I think particularly omeprazole is perceived as being a very benign therapy. Um, but what we know is that there are significant um, side effects. It can cause headache, diarrhoea, constipation, nausea in up to 14% of children. Um, the other thing is that you know, the gastric acid is there as a protective layer and we know that um, there is an increased risk of gastroenteritis in these children. So they are very real um, concerns. There's also concerns about the effect of these medications on the microbiome of children and, and young infants and it's really not well understood but that might be predisposing them to infections as well and there's also concern about later bone health. And in fact there was a finding also showing that PPIs could increase the risk of food allergies. And uh, the fifth and final commandment on the list is to not order abdominal x-rays for the diagnosis of non-specific abdominal pain in children. One study in particular of patient records from a non-trauma emergency department found that they might have changed patient treatment in only 4% of cases. But reading the list of possible conditions led me to think that x-rays must help somehow narrow down the, the options. Why isn't this the case, Sarah? The most common presentation for abdominal pain is most likely to be constipation and there's good evidence to say that x-rays don't help us in the assessment of constipation. 
then the other differential diagnoses that we're looking at are sometimes important but not as common. The most important one we would think about would be intersusception. But intersusception in itself is not always seen on abdominal x-ray. So I get very concerned when someone says to me, I thought about intersusception, but I did the x-ray and it's normal, so I'm sending the patient home. Because to me, that's we can't really rule in diagnoses based on x-rays, but we also can't rule them out. In fact, one of the findings referred to in the list shows that radiographic evidence of constipation was found just as often in clinically constipated kids as it was in those that didn't have symptoms. How do you make sense of that? Is, is, it, is that what you've just said? <laughs> yeah, I think it's a combination of if you see something that you want to attribute to a diagnosis like constipation, then you can easily do that because it's a non-specific test. But it also gives false reassurance at times as well. So I think that it leads to overdiagnosis in some cases and misdiagnosis in others. I had a uh, radiologist when I was training who once said, you know, if you see the poo in the bowel, that's where it's meant to be. If, it's, if, if the poo's outside the bowel, that's when you get worried. And is it another case of a result that doesn't, if, if the result doesn't quite fit with your initial diagnosis, it might send you down the wrong rabbit hole? Oh, absolutely. absolutely. Mm. I like how you chimed in there together. Um, and another retrospective study from paediatric ED presentations found that those radiographs that were shown to be diagnostically useful could be filtered by selecting only those patients who'd had prior abdominal surgery or a suspected foreign body ingestion, abnormal bowel sounds or abdominal distension. Would these markers be well recognised by our physicians? Yeah, I think they absolutely would be. And that comes back to the, you know, don't routinely order it for non-specific abdominal pain. And all those things you've mentioned would be uh, more specific abdominal pain markers. I think the other thing we have to be careful of that some people go, oh, well, x-rays cause radiation, ultrasounds don't. So I'll just go and do an ultrasound. And that's been seen overseas that you get a spike in other low-value care practices when you rule out one. So and they're just we'll have as to be aware of that. They're just, just as, as unhelpful, yeah, in non-specific abdominal pain. Are there any more definitive imaging modalities? or? Nope, it's back down to hope. Look, I think we have to be really clear about our top five list here. All of these are useful tools, useful investigations, useful therapies. We're not wanting to throw the baby out with the bathwater. The important thing is context. When they're used out of the context where they are useful, they can actually become a hindrance and a harm, and that's what we're talking about here. I think we need to get the language around this right, Um, and I know what they say in the US is doing less safely, and that's a good... You wouldn't want to get the emphasis wrong, would you? (laughs) But that's a good um, mantra to have. You know, we're not trying to just save costs. We're not. We're just trying to do less, but do it in a safe way. That was Harriet Hiscock ending this episode of Pomegranate. Many thanks also to Sarah Dalton and Hamish McKay for their generous contributions. The views expressed are their own and may not represent those of the Royal Australasian College of Physicians. To find links to the Evolve lists and other resources mentioned in the program, visit the Pomegranate website at racp.edu.au forward slash pomcast. Feel free to email us with your feedback 
or if you'd like more information about joining the podcast's editorial group. And you can share the discussion round using the Twitter hashtag RACPpod. I'm Mick Cavazzini. Thanks for listening. <laughs>